right, David Wimhoff is the author of many, many books or many works. Uh, one that we'll talk a little bit about today and some others. John Courtney Murray, Time, Life, and the American Proposition. Now, the CIA's doctrinal warfare program changed the Catholic Church. Volume 1. I think there's a volume 2 that's coming out. David Wimhoff, welcome back to the Mike Church Show here on the Crusade Channel Live Talk Radio. Uh, the way it should be. How are you? Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be back. Uh, and thanks for all the great work you're doing. What do you think about Bill Gates editing the genes of chickens? Well, I think that Bill Gates um, thinks that he is God. And uh, that is very dangerous. When people who are as wealthy and as influential as Bill Gates and as connected as Bill Gates is think they can be God, we should all be scared because we live in societies that are very clearly dedicated to the proposition that God's law is not to govern the laws of this society. You see, uh, uh, David, that's exactly, <laughs> is almost verbatim what I said before you came on, that this guy, this is the definition of God complex. This yeah. man looks at the chicken in Ethiopia, finds it wanting in its creation, and decides that he's going to play God and he's going to fix it. That's right. And um, technology has advanced uh, to such a degree uh, that we should all be very frightened. Um, uh, artificial intelligence took a quantum leap in November with this program called ChatGPT, um, which essentially acts like a human being, talks like a human being, thinks like a human being. And there's more changes coming down the road. So what we need to understand is that there's really nothing limiting these guys uh, except uh, their own desires. And they're interested in, in themselves and wealth and in power and in concentrating that wealth and power. And um, transhumanism is part of that too. It's part of remaking the human being, uh, especially so the few can live longer. That's what it is. Uh, I hadn't heard about this advance in AI. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? And what did, what did you call it? It's called chat, C-H-A-T, G-P-T. And, and um, what people are doing with it now, you'll, you'll see some random stories. If you just Google that, you'll see some random stories about how people are reading into this program certain things about their own lives. Say, say they're reading journals from when they were a kid or, or journals from you know they were middle-aged or maybe a book they wrote or their thoughts or whatever. And then this thing takes on a life of its own, if you will, and it's able to talk to them as though it was a real person, and they can ask this person, you know, what is going to happen, what they think about this, what do they think about that, and you get that interplay. In other words, the lines are being blurred between human and computer program, but the computer programs are still got characteristics of humans in them, and so the issue is, who gets to program the computers? <laughs> So, so uh, Hollywood's already gotten out ahead of this. What's the name of the movie that's coming out? Was it called Meg? Megan? What's the the the, the rope? The doll? The ro Megan. Megan. There's a movie coming out called Megan. Uh, yeah, you got me on that. Oh, I, okay. The tra you got if you just go to YouTube and Google the tra and search for the trailer Megan. It is creepy because it's a doll, all right. But the doll looks like a living little girl. 
And uh, obviously the doll goes bad and goes Chucky on the family and decides <laughs> that it's going to try and kill the family, and that's what the story is about. But this has already been portrayed, and you know I had this theory about science fiction that it's not science fiction at all, that it's the Holy Ghost speaking sometimes through very bad people and warning the human race about, all right, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. If you start monkeying around with my creation, our creation right. as a trinity, right. this is what ha this is a, this is how it can go off the rails and how bad things can come of it. Well, that's right, and and the the good thing, if you can call it that, of living in evil times, is you get to see what is evil. But what you really want to also find out is why did it turn evil? Now we know it's the human heart turning away from God. We know that. Okay, but then there is also two uh, other factors external to the human heart that make it likely or make it possible uh, for this to happen or even encourage it. So you have to look at systems. You know, the catechism talks about structures of sin, social sin, institutions that come about when people sin. These institutions are built on sin. And so that is something that we have to analyze in this society and see where we went off the rails. And I think a big part where we went off the rail is not recognizing the social kingship of Christ and, and putting it in our fundamental documents. Uh, and that would limit uh, what, you know, evil can come, if you will. Um, you know, a lot of people think that uh, if, if we put, um, and I've been having this discussion lately with a friend of mine about um the National Reform Association, this movement to put Jesus Christ in the Constitution, and that's great, and that's been going on for about 150, 160 years now, and it's like doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. Um, but you still have the issue of, of how do you determine, how, how do you analyze Jesus Christ? What, what did he say? What did he do? Who's the authority on it? And so you always run into the issue of uh, who is going to be the check on the civil authorities, on the private authorities, on the individuals. Who's going to be the arbiter of truth? You still need somebody to do that. I mean, you got the documents, right? You got the doctrine of the faith, you got the religion, whatever. But you still need somebody who's going to be in a position of, of authority in that society to speak authoritatively about what, what it is that is right and what is wrong, and thereby serve as a check on the power of people. See, I didn't know that the ERA, which if you read Christopher Ferrara's book, Liberty, the Guy That Failed, that's where I learned about the ERA from the 1860s, and that they were meeting to try to add to the Constitution. They wanted to amend the preamble, and they wanted to put what they called the God Clause in it. They actually wrote it out. I mean, if you read it, you and I wouldn't disagree with it. I, I would go, yeah, go ahead and do it. This is a bunch of Protestants. These are evangelicals um, that, that came up with this. And they tried for like 20 years. They had, they had yearly conventions. They were lobbying senators, uh, radical Republicans primarily. And they're going to get nowhere with those people because uh, they're anti-Catholic. Um, right. And they were lobbying members of the House of Representatives. They got nowhere with them. They just finally gave up. I didn't know that they were back. Oh, they're, they're still around. Yeah, they... They still exist. They've got a website, and they, they're doing their thing. Uh, they're not getting a lot of result, uh, a, a lot of results. And I think uh, um, the Huffington Post uh, wrote something a few years about them, you know, <laughs> criticizing them. Uh, but they're still out there, and it, it was. You're absolutely correct. It was an. It's an attempt to to change the preamble. Um, they got, you know, they had a lot of oomph back in the 1860s because of the Civil War. 
and you had uh, General Ulysses Grant, who was then president, uh, make Christmas a national, a federal holiday in 1870. Um, and he was under political pressure to do it. But also, if you look at some of the historical accounts, he did it because he wanted the society to come together in Christ. Well, that's in Colossians, right? One, one, twelve through eighteen. You know, in Christ, all things hold together. Right, right, so right. So this part of him understood that you need Christ in your society, you know, to bring people together. Um, I, I want to read something to you. I don't know if I've got it handy here, uh, but um, yeah, I, I probably don't have it handy. I've been doing some research and writing here, and uh, there's a man by the name of John Epstein. He's a name who has been pretty much lost to history. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't find his book. His name's been lost to history. He was an Englishman. He was uh, converted from Anglicanism to, um, to the Catholic faith around 1919. He was very big in uh, the League of Nations establishing that. Uh, you don't really find much about this guy. I never heard of him. Um, I, <laughs> I hadn't either. And so uh, it seems like every book he wrote uh, was a book that had a Neil Obstadt and an imprimatur. Um, and this guy's writing is, is solid. He wrote a book in 1971 called Has the Catholic Church Gone Mad? And Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, we must answer that in the affirmative. I think a lot of people would answer that in the affirmative. <laughs> you know, I, really, I really hope I can get that because he's, he's got a great quote. Um, I tell you, what, go, take your time finding it, and I'll uh, I'll wax in eloquent for just a moment. David Wimhoff is the uh, author of the John Courtney Murray Time Life and the American Proposition: How the CIA's Doctrinal Warfare Program Changed the Catholic Church. And he's on our Dude Maker Hotline here with us on audio and on video here today. And uh, we're we're talking. We'll, we'll talk about the CIA in a minute here. And he's talking about this is something fascinating because I spent the first. Hour and uh, two hours of the of this show today, David, talking about the left versus the right, and about this guy who I had never heard of and I'd never read before. His name is Eun McGilchrist, and he's a psychiatrist, and he's written a bunch of books, and you can find him on YouTube. He's getting lectures all around the world, and Rod Dreher was quoting him at great length about how our civilization has become paranoid, schizophrenic in its structure. And it's because we've leaned and we chose, or the bad guys uh, 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 won the war of right brain thinking versus left brain thinking. And left brain thinking is very small and it's very logical and it's very focused. It has no imagination to it whatsoever. And it tends to be very, very vindictive and uh, petty and angry. Well, right brain thinking... Uh, Everything comes from the top. It's hierarchical, and it's big and it's broad because it includes nature as God created it. And Eun McGilchrist, in his explanations, I'm just reading it going like, this is 15 years ago that, the, that, uh, that he wrote this book, and he describes accurately what it is that's going to happen if the left brain, if the schizophrenia is not opposed, and if it's not, if people that don't stand up and go like, hey, this is this is dangerous schizophrenic thinking. Did you find the book? I did. Okay. Well, well, just to speak very and thank you very much for your, for I, I put it back with the other books uh, after <laughs> I was done with it yesterday. But um, th this idea of schizophrenia, I, I think, is very real that you're talking about because you know today on the news they're talking about how 
um, the survey from NPR and Ipsos says, well, a lot of Americans are upset with their local representatives and their local uh, state legislators because, you know, they're voting against the will of the people uh, in favor of restrictions on abortion. And they're doing that because they're getting funds from corporations and donors. Wait a minute. That's how the system works, you know? So you guys just don't like the results. So that's schizophrenia. But see, the media then tells you if it's the other way around, well, then, you know, uh, if what's happening is they're voting to allow abortion, oh, and they're getting contributions, oh, that's okay. If, if the corporations come to Indiana and say, oh, no, no, you got to allow gay rights, you know, um, you got to allow that. Well, that's okay. That's okay. That that's not improper influence. So this, what 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 you have in America is you have a number of ideas, and these ideas are spread all throughout the world now. You have ideas in the form of liberalism, which causes the schizophrenia. You're jumping from one foot to the other. What does it mean in this context? So you just have to look from the sig for the signal on high. And anybody who's listening to the media, and anyone who listens to you, Mike Church, knows which way to think, and that's the right way. Okay. Yes. But some people don't listen to you. Okay. <laughs> Most people, people don't listen to me. <laughs> well, a lot of people don't listen to you, and that's their that's their problem, isn't it? They're listening to the mainstream media, and they're doing the wrong thing because they're getting signal from the mainstream media on how to act. And the mainstream media is expert on this; they know how to do it because it's what they say and it's how they say it, and what they don't show. And, and, and we can prove the schizophrenia in several different ways. We can we can now. Using uh, empirical data, you can prove it. Here's the first proof, and and Dreyer, Dreyer has a chart uh, in this: child, adolescent, gender identity referrals uh, from the Tavistock Center in London. In 2010, there were two. In 2018, there were 48. Now I don't know what the if that's a percent or if that's just a. Uh, uh, or that's a, an actual number. Um, there was a survey that was done, and it was published uh, uh, in the first week of January of this year, where um, it showed that 5% of all children 12 to 19 years old now identify as a gender or a sex other than what they were born with. Now, well, that's lower than what I thought it was. Yeah, but the number, um, is it, was it 5%? Was it 5% or 12 to, uh, it was 5%. 5%, but it used to, but it was, it was a fraction of hundreds of a percent back in 2010. Right. So the, 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 you can see this then, you can see this paranoia and this schizophrenia, this illogical look at the world. This look at this pointed very, very narrow, very, very narrow, let us focus. It's almost like it's, it's, it's Zelenskyism on steroid. Isolate it, focus it, and change the conversation and point to it. And that's what they've been successful in doing and conning these children basically into killing themselves. Because you start mutilating body parts, first you start sterilizing yourself, you eliminate future human civilization. You can see that this is pointing. This is obviously a demonic assault against God and against his creation, which is us, man. So I believe there's empirical data now that shows. And it's not just us, you know, I had an exorcist on the, sh on the show on Friday, uh, Mr. Uh, Kyle Clemmie, who works with Father Rippinger, and he was like, we can't answer all the calls that we get now. We don't have, he said, three to 5,000 referrals a year. That's incredible. Three that's to incredible. five, that's one priest. 
three to, they, they got so big that they had to form an association and ask other priests to join it because they can't field all the requests from people that are scared. They're terrified because they see the demonic manifesting itself in their families. So this is real. This stuff is real. It's very real. Now, what does Mr. Epstein have to say about this? Well, this is kind of interesting. He says, um, he wrote in 1971, uh, and he said, um, uh, uh, as for the campaign of the new American establishment, it is almost wholly negative. Inspired by the deep-rooted anti-authoritarian spirit bred of that strange combination of Puritanism and the Enlightenment of the 18th century, which formed the American mind, it is essentially anti-papal and, find, and finds its natural allies in the old seed grounds of Calvinism and rationalism in Western Europe. By instinct, it criticizes or opposes all that the Pope teaches by virtue of his unique authority, be it the traditional tenets of the creed or the moral restraints upon sex, where the sexual obsession is most virulent in the post-Protestant countries. And that is how they say they will not serve God. Exactly what you said. They will not serve God by monkeying with the sex issues. And what you have is um, it's democratization and revolt against authority, he said. And so, but, but what you have is what you also said a little earlier, Mike, is that this is being done by individuals to themselves, okay? Like Roe authorized people to abort their own children, authorized women to abort their own children. Right. Again, euthanasia, is, it's a personal choice. See, but that's okay if you want to do it because we believe in the radical autonomy of the individual, okay? But if you're like communist China or National Socialist Germany or, or any other society that maybe even here in the United States, which limits abortions, well, that's the government. That's authority telling you what to do, and that's wrong. That's the mentality that we're dealing with in this society. It is basically anti-papal. It's anti-Christ. It, it is non-servium. It is, like you said, it is satanic. It is diabolical. It is Satan saying, I'm not going to serve. And this is how it manifests itself. And this, is, this has been an ongoing defect in, liber, in the liberal order. And this is the problem with the liberal order. And it is leading us to a point of tyranny where we are being tyrannized by the most powerful, most capable, most intelligent, most connected, the Bill Gates of the world, are going to tyrannize us and say, well, you have freedom, you have your choice. It's not tyranny. Let me read you a headline. David Wimhoff is the author of many books, including the book on the CIA and John Courtney Murray, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Let me read you a headline from today's New York Times. Now, David, don't think ill of me because I'm paying the New York Times now. I'm doing well, this. I'm doing this on behalf I, of all of my listeners, so they don't have to. So, I, I read the New York Times. You got to know what the enemy is doing, right? <laughs> okay, then you probably saw this, folks. I want you to listen to this headline here and this story. Now, they still do employ supposedly the world's most or the America's most gifted journalism students. So, I'm going to give them a little bit of, of credibility there. Not much, but let's just say they, 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 they look for the best among the worst. How about that? Here's the headline. China's population falls, heralding a demographic crisis. Deaths outnumbered births last year for the first time in six decades. Experts see major implications for China, its economy, and the world. Now, I'm going to let Mr. Wimhoff explain this. 
This is how communism works. You kill God, you kill man, the family, and then you kill man. It's like Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park uh, in, 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 in reverse. So uh, God creates dinosaurs and God creates man. Man eats dinosaur and the woman rules the earth, right? <laughs> but this is how this is what communism does, and it would have killed the Soviet Union if they didn't kill it. Oh no, no! Communism is a very bad system. It destroys. Uh, it, it destroys um, culture. It destroys religion. It destroys a people because it takes God out of the system. But you know. So does the liberal order, right? The Enlightenment-based liberal communism grew out of and a response to uh, the liberal order. And, and what I am uh, positing in some of my upcoming papers and works is that the liberal order was, was had this fancy philosophy that was put together by guys like John Locke. But it really was, was a type of um, a window dressing, a fig leaf, to allow for a certain political economy a certain uh, way of ordering society where the ambitious, the, uh, the greedy, the unscrupulous can rise to the top and accumulate um, wealth and riches. Now, it brings a lot of people along with them, uh, but, but that is what I think ultimately is in the liberal order. And, that, and ultimately, communism, in a way, was a reaction to the liberal order. It was a reaction to capitalism. Uh, and this has been talked about by other commentators. Um, so it, it is destructive. Now, it's interesting what you're saying about China, because I heard the, the, the radio and the TV reports this, this morning. And once again, you can tell by the, by the voices of these people that they're just giddy about this, because this now exposes China um, to change at the highest levels. Um, the global plutocracy, George Soros doesn't like Xi Jinping. And there has been a discussion for a long time, about the proper role of business in China. And we are presented in the media this idea that the Chinese Communist Party wants to run business, uh, whereas the businessman wants to work with the Chinese Communist Party. So the question becomes, what is the proper relation between business and the party? And uh, the West, of course, says, well, you know, they, they've got to work together, and Xi is too authoritarian, and he has to go. So even though communism is harmful to people, and it really is, even the authoritarian nature of the regime can get to be too much for some of the plutocratic class. They don't want autocracy. They don't want authoritarian rule. They actually want to call the shots. And Xi isn't letting them call the shots all the time. He's shut down Jack Ma. He's, um, he's closed down uh, the country for a while. It's opening up now. And uh, when and he's done other things with businesses that are coming into the country, and a lot of businesses have offshored or reshored as a result. So there's a, a great deal of unhappiness here uh, in the business community uh, with the global plutocrats. I'm going to put it that way because because there are a lot of decent people in the business community who are trying to make a living and be fair. I'm talking about the global plutocracy. I'm talking about the one tenth of one percent that call the shots. I'm talking about the Bill Gates class. Okay. There's like, what, 798 in the world, billionaires. These are the guys, okay, that run the show in many ways, along with their interests and their allies. So these are the guys I'm talking about. And they want to have control over societies, like Bill Gates says, and they don't want a government, whether it's an ideology or it's an ethnic uh, or a religious base, they don't want that kind of a government to, to call the shots. They just don't.
And I, 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 I believe that this is rooted then in uh, the left and leftist hatred of hierarchy. We could say you could say what you want about the Chinese, the Chicoms, and the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping, and how China is run as an authoritarian regime. Um, but it is a hierarchy, and they're aping they're aping Catholic hierarchy, which has the church and the state as equal, right? The two perfect societies. They're only equal when they work together. But when there is a conflict and it's faith, doctrine, and morals are, are in question here, then the state, well, let's put the state on the left hand, then the state, <laughs> the church is on the right hand, then the, ch- the, ch- the state must, must yield. It must yield to the church. And this is how it works in monarchical Europe. You can say all you want about all the tyrant kings and all the wars of religion that were supposedly started over Catholicism and and, and whatnot. If there was going to be a war that was going to be started over Catholicism and religion in the old world, it would have been Italy. Italy would have invaded, would have called upon a new Don John to invade Germany and put Luther's revolt down. If there would have been wars for religion, that would have been one. Go invade Germany, go find him, get him, and stop Lutheranism, which would lead to Calvinism and any other revolt. Same thing in England. You know, the Pope could have ordered England to be invaded and Henry to be deposed. Instead, he just excommunicated him because he did not, uh, you don't impose the faith by the sword, right? That's what Muslims do. Um, uh, So... They oppose hierarchies. What it is is they oppose hierarchies, and why? Because God and the social kingship, as you pointed out, this is the ultimate hierarchy. It's the ultimate one. And this is why you wrote the book, and you can talk a lot about this, about why the CIA invaded, or whatever they did, to get inside the Catholic Church and change it. Well, um... You're right. The, 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 the plutocratic interests, um, I, I come from the point of view that, that the plutocratic interests are, are, are tyrants. They reject the will of God. They say, we're not going to serve. Christ gave us a choice. He said, you serve God or you serve mammon. That, that's your choice. And he said that it's a couple places in the Gospels. So the plutocratic class is, no, we're not going to serve. We're going to create things the way we want. Now, you got to understand the thinking of these people. Um, the Anglo-American plutocratic class is very sophisticated. Okay, they're they're not as heavy-handed as some ruling classes in the past in other countries. Okay. They're more sophisticated. They they offer carrots. They offer ideas. They offer things to get you to come along with them willfully, and they use everything and they work with everything until they get tired of it and they want more control and more power. So they can work with with a communist regime in China for a while, but right now it's outlived its usefulness, at least in the form of Xi. They want Xi gone. They want more personal freedoms. They want more of a consumer society in China. Yeah, 1.4 billion consumers. That's incredible. The profits are astronomical that you can get in that country. So um, this is what they do, and this is how they look at it. So the plutocratic class, it does things oftentimes very successfully out in the open because it's got the the principles in place in the form of constitutions, in the form of a philosophy, um, in the form of things that seem to be good on their surface, to let every, you know, that seem to let live and let live. Um, 
and allow people a maximum amount of freedom and opportunity to do what they want, you know, to make money. So that that's how they kind of do it. However, they still used the CIA, which is is a globalist operation. It serves it serves the the plutocracy to advance their interests. And the way that they do that is, you know, oftentimes the CIA works in the dark. Now they gather a lot of intelligence because that's where you can get a lot of intelligence. You get a lot of intelligence working in the dark. You get a lot of intelligence just keeping your eyes and ears open and watching what happens and understanding how things work. And that's called open source. But, but they also do dirty tricks. And one of the things the CIA did is they funded operations like Prodeo University back in the 1940s and 50s. Felix Morleone was the Catholic priest. He was Dominican who actually started this. He, he, he ran away from the Nazis. He was Belgian. He ran away from the Nazis, um, the OSS, and then later the CIA picked him up and funded his operation Prodeo in Rome. Prodeo was a university that basically taught the, 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 the young business class in Latin America and around the world, all Catholics, of course, that the ideal system of social organization is the liberal order as contained in the, in the American constitution declaration of independence. Mm. Well, well, what that does, you know, so, so what is the, what is the constitution declaration of independence? Look, 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 expert after expert has said that John Locke was the most influential member on, on most influential uh, philosopher on the mind of the American founders. Okay. Well, okay. So then his thinking is reflected in those documents. Well, okay, I've got a couple things to say. So who is John Locke? Now, maybe we touched on this last time we talked, but who is John Locke? Who is this guy? No, we only talked for a, a, a moment. I'd also add uh, to David Wimhall, I'd also add, because I know Madison read David Hume, and Hume was an atheist. Right. right. So who is John Locke? Tell us. Well, well, John Locke was this kid. He was a poor kid. He grew up, and he came under the uh, care of, and I want to get the names right. I got all the books here because I've been reading hard on this. <laughs> I want to get what, it right. I want to be accurate. What is this fact stuff that you're presenting us yeah, with? I mean, fact. You can prove anything with fact, yeah, right? Yeah, just make it up like, like they do. I mean, just uh, <laughs> Peter Sabigny or whatever his name is. Yeah, that's John Locke's understudy. <laughs> yeah, who is he? Yeah. Okay, so Anthony Ashley Cooper was the first Earl of Shaftesbury. He lived from 1621 to 1683, okay? This guy was a whale. Okay, this guy was a whale. He understood trade. All right, he understood trade. This is what his one of his biographers says. He says um, Anthony Ashley Cooper, at the time Charles II came to occupy the throne, was as well informed about the affairs of the colonies in general as was any individual in England. He was one of the most actively employed in the ambitious program of building up a self-sufficing colonial empire self-governing as to its local affairs, but controlled in matters of trade by a central body responsible directly to the central government, and he knew what were the currents and the controversies of colonial commerce. Okay, so in this biography by uh, a renowned um, uh, historian, Louise uh, Fargo-Brown from 1957, she talks about how he knew not just about trade, but about the plantations in the colonies. And remember, England had plantations all over the world. So this guy knew economics, all right? And he knew what worked and what didn't when it came to controlling um, economic enterprises and making money. Now, at the time, you could, you could say that this was a mercantilistic system because the crown 
gave these commissions to go out and found these different colonies because the lords and ladies of the day wanted to make money. So he took a look at what worked and what didn't, what created profit and what didn't. And so he hired somebody to help him, and that was John Locke. And John Locke was a very smart guy. And John Locke uh, sat down and basically came up with a series of ideas to make things work in the colonies. And some of those things were like, you know, reducing um, uh, 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 custom duties, reducing taxes, religious liberty, get everybody in there, you know, to work. So what you had is a lot of the foundational principles um, in the American Constitution, especially religious liberty, was a practical thing that the Anglo-Americans came up with to get people to work the colonies. Right. And, and so what you have is, um, and a lot of this stuff is out in the open, what you have is you have a series of thinkers who were, they really weren't thinkers, they were more businessmen who just simply saw what worked. Like you had Pierre de la Corte, who was a Frenchman, and his books were in the Madison Papers and in the Hamilton Papers. You got Josiah Child. This guy was huge. He knew Cooper, who was the first Lord uh, of um, Ashley. He was Lord Ashley. Josiah Charles, who wrote, um, you know, in order to really be profitable, we, we have to have merchants in the councils of law and government. We have to have good quality work, gavelkind, protect, which means good quality, and, and, and actually equally provide... Um, you have to do away primogenitor, in other words. Gavilkin is doing away primogenitor, which means that when somebody dies, their kids take equally, okay? Protect inventors and the innovative. This is from 1660s, okay? Wow. Build great ships to sail for low cost. Educate daughters and sons. <laughs> low customs, high excise. Excise is like a punishment tax, as you know. Toleration of different opinions and matters of religion by reason of which many industrious people of other countries that dissent from the established governments or their churches resort to them with their families and their estates. Okay. So these are the ideas that are bubbling up in Holland because Holland was very successful in the 1600s and in England and England's watching Holland say, how can we be successful like them? And so they're taking these ideas. So these ideas were practical. And as a result, these ideas came about in the 1660s. They were articulated by Josiah Child, who was the head of the East India Company and a director, a very famous, very wealthy Englishman. Well, um, Locke wrote his book about the treatises of government and about toleration in the 1680s. Okay? And if you take a look at Maurice Cranston, who wrote the biography, another great historian, wrote the biography of Locke, he basically says that Locke, Locke's philosophy was the pragmatic experience of Lord Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I get it now. This makes sense. This makes sense now. This is, this is what this philosophy of liberalism promoted. Okay. And so, um, you know, it, it, they did not want the Catholic Church involved because the Catholic Church was a foreign power. It would have restricted what they could have done. So they didn't want that in there. Like you said, the church is there to stand over the rulers and say, no, don't do that. Don't do this. You know, that's wrong. You can be deposed. Absolutely right. It was Bellarmine, Suarez, the school of Salamanca said that. That can happen. They can be removed. Um, and the, actually, the Jesuits tried that. 
But this is kind of what, what the philosophy of Locke was really about. So we have to understand what this is about. And it puts, but, but why am I saying this? Am I, am I against business? No. Am I against making a profit? No. The Catholic Church clearly says in doctrine, it clearly says you can work and make a profit and enjoy it. Absolutely. I'm not saying that. Okay. And, and I think people sometimes think I am saying that, but I'm not saying that. You can work, you can make a profit. What I'm saying is this. The Catholic doctrine is pretty clear that the civil authorities are responsible for the good of society. It's not Bill Gates and his compatriots because their idea of good of society is bad for us. Right. Right? It's the Catholic Church which tells us what is good, and it's the government that makes sure that good is implemented. But you see, John Locke and Lord Ashley and Josiah Child, and there's just so many others. I mean, Montesquieu was another one. <laughs> All of these guys. Voltaire. Were, the Voltaire. The <clears throat> businessman, the individual person. The civic community knows what's best. That, that's Thomas Paine. And when they start talking like that, they say the church gets out of there. It's a private matter. And basically the powerful are the ones who rule. This is the conflict that's going on. It takes many shapes throughout history. And, and nowadays we're seeing it in the war against China and, and Russia. They don't want authoritarian leaders. I, I mean, look, they'll allow communism you know, in name only. They don't care. They'll allow dictatorial rulers. They don't care. If they get to call the shots, like in some of the banana republics. So that's that's where my thought, that's my research. What, okay, so but uh, David Wimhoff is the author. You, you say you're working on papers. Where are they going to be published at? Well, right now I'm, I'm putting it up on um, uh, my website, theamericanproposition.com, and I want to put together a book of my thought along this line. I've been working on it for some time, and, and you know, COVID kind of slowed it down. But you also got to take time to think about stuff, and you got to <laughs> take time to research well, no there's no we've got rid of contemplation computers calculate and social media does it immediately you don't need to contemplate it yeah right you're just supposed to go <laughs> with what the latest rumor is right mike now, now let me add let me uh, add to what you said <clears throat> you mentioned hamilton best biography of hamilton written in a modern era is written by richard burkheiser uh alexander hamilton murrican very, very scholarly, good work. I read that book a couple of times. I know the life of Hamilton. What you said about Locke, you, you know that Hamilton was a was the product of, he was a bastard. His mother could not care for him, so at the age of four, she basically gave him to a sailing merchant dude. Um, uh, and he was born in Nevis, okay? So he grew up in the trade routes of the Caribbean up to the Americas. He grew up under a guy that was a, the, that was a profiteer, a privateer, if you will, who was sailing ships, gathering spices and sugars and what have you, and bringing them to the Virginia Company uh, or bringing them to Virginia or South Carolina or whatever. So his life experience was one of a businessman. That's all he under and and and, and yeah. one of a um and and then where 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 they were doing business uh, also of a royal we call it central they called it royal a royal bank so where does Hamilton get these ideas from well he educates himself because the guy that he's the mercantile dude gives him off to a, 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 a to a woman who 
tutors him and teaches him how to read and write at a very young age, like when he's five. So he's Hamilton is one of the smartest Americans that ever walked the, that ever walked the soil. Oh, I mean, the guy was just pure genius. Oh, he was. And because he was raised and he had no parent really to care for him, he had to care for himself. You know, he grew up. Would not, uh, other than that man, that captain of that ship uh, with an authority figure, uh, of course it would follow that the guy was a merchant, was a a ship captain, uh, and he was one of those swarthy characters. So, you know, when Hamilton gets married later on on in life, he almost brings the American government down because he's having an affair with this woman, and he's the Secretary of Treasury. And Washington calls him and goes like, dude, you can't do that. They will blackmail you. They will. The French, the English will find out that you're doing this, or the Dutch will, and they'll kill. They'll blackmail all of us. So Hamilton is is a very misunderstood character. But if you really look at Hamilton's system, Hamilton had a deeper respect for English monarchy than all of the other founders combined, and that was because Hamilton grew up in Nevis on English merchant ships, and he saw the, the, the good side of monarchy, too. Not just He didn't just see you know, the tyrant the, that Locke hated. He saw the good side. So Hamilton, in, in the Federal Convention of 1787, he's the only one that's arguing that, uh, basically not for a president, but for a king. He's going, no, no, we have to have authority at the top. And the Senate needs to be there, House of Lords. Senate needs to be there for life. Because people look at Hamilton, they go, he was nuts, he was this and that. He was basically a monarchist. Would you would you agree with my assessment? Am, am, I, am I right? Am I close? Yeah, I, I think he I, I think you're right, Mike. I, mm-hmm. I think he definitely wanted um, uh, um, he he wanted some he wanted a strong authority. Authority, strong authority, that's right. In society. And, and the model that they had, they were all Former Englishman, that was the king, right? Right. It was the king with the parliament. And and, and look what you had in the colonies. In Virginia, at the time of the Revolution, you had Lord Dunmore, royal governor. He wasn't elected, he was appointed. He answered to King George III. Uh, Most people don't know this, but at the time of the Revolution, Benjamin Franklin's son, William Franklin, is royal governor of New Jersey. So, you know, and here we, we actually did have some hierarchy, right. some hierarchy. The American Revolution pretty much did away with that, and Madison and the Federal Convention then took the next big leap, and it was a big leap. And that is, okay, we're, we're, we're separated now. We don't have primogenitor. Uh, we got rid of that. We don't have the church to answer to anymore. Now who do we answer to? We answer to we the people. This is the foundational mistake, and there's no papering over it. You know, it's an interesting thing that you talk about primogeniture. You know that George Washington was the first president of a society founded on primogeniture, the Society of the Cincinnati. He's the first president, and you can't get into the Society of the Cincinnati unless you are a male descendant, firstborn male descendant of a descendant of an officer in the Continental Army. So you have, and, and Washington says yes, he joins it. I mean, he joins a hierarchical, primogenitor-based society. So you know, some of the elements that could have turned the Constitution uh, a, a different way, maybe it never gets ratified. 
Maybe Patrick Henry and George Mason are successful in the Virginia Convention, at least getting the vote delayed, and it never gets ratified. You have an Articles of Confederation, and heaven knows what happens with the French. Do the French have a revolution? Maybe they don't because they're looking at the failure of the American one. Who knows what happens, right? I don't know if, you're, well, if, if any of these topics come up in your writings or in what you... Well, I, I think that's great historical work on your part, Mike. Um, I, I think that's great analysis. Um, and, you know, we've had these discussions here um, <clears throat> about, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, the American system. And actually, ha had the American Revolution failed, uh, yeah, I, I think that the French Revolution probably would not have come about because who went over there? Um, it was Thomas Paine, right? Uh, Thomas Paine went over to France. He, he almost wrote, got he executed. Right they threw him in jail. He almost got executed. He almost got, he almost got executed. They almost killed him. <laughs> they almost killed him in England, too, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but he had a friend who helped him out called Joel Barlow. And Joel Barlow was a, you know, you look this guy up, he was a poet, which means he was unemployed. So he was also, he was also a Mason, but he was a friend of Thomas Paine. And for somehow, he wangled himself a job as, as an American representative over in France. And he said, you know, the liberal order, we're going to rule the world. Well, that's kind of prophetic. I mean, you know, for a, well, an unemployed guy. <laughs> what did Mason, what, what did Paine say in common sense? We have the power to make the world over again. That's right. That's correct. I, I mean, this this kind of thinking. It sounds flowery in my uh, my documentaries that I made before I got back to the religion and the road to independence. Where the power to make the world over again? No, 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 no. Well, well, these guys these guys were really really pumped up after they won the revolution, um, and you know those ideas that that they circulated and that formed a lot of what they were doing. Um, those ideas have been around for a while. And uh, so they felt that the, this was a real uh, vindication of these ideas. One of the greatest sources of Lockean ideas, of these liberal ideas, is anti-authoritarianism that we've been talking about, was Cato's letters that were printed by a couple of Englishmen uh, in the 1720 to 1723 area. And those were very popular in, in, in America, as you know. And, I mean, everybody had those. Franklin had them in the library, uh, Hamilton, Washington, Madison. They had all that stuff. And it was the, the idea of non-servium. We the people rule. We're the authority. Which, which, what does that mean? That means that we make morality, right? Yep. That we're, we determine what's right and wrong. Well, that's, that's not Catholicism. And if you take that route, again, you end up with guys like Bill Gates running the show. Okay? That's, that's where that goes. But... But these guys, the, the American founders, you know, they were brilliant, they were tough, they were brave, um, they were clever, and when they won, they felt a real flush of, of victory and success, and they were rolling at that point. They were yeah. on a roll. And even, even Washington in 1783, in one of his final letters to the troops, said, we've created an empire, and we're going to rule the world. That's basically what he said. We've created an empire. We're going to rule the world. And so this is what these guys were thinking. Um, Thomas, I think it's Thomas Dorflinger wrote a book about the Philadelphia merchants. It came out in 1986, a very well-known book. Um, of course, I forget the name of it right now. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, was about, it was about commerce. And when the Americans won this, the, the war, um, business exploded over here. 
It exploded. You had banks, you had insurance companies, you had all sorts of corporations being formed, and these guys just went out into the world. And everybody who had fought on the winning side in the revolution was part of that economic enterprise. Now, what Hamilton and others saw, though, was there was a problem here because these Articles of Confederation, as you know, you, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here. Mm -hmm. I, the Articles of Confederation were a problem. Th there wasn't enough power there. Okay, we needed a strong government, and so that's what he created was a strong government because the commercial interests wanted that. And when you're dealing with the commercial interests, when you're dealing with you know the privateers and the traders, you deal with money because you got to get paid somehow. So you're dealing with innovative, creative ways of making that payment happen. Happen, And so you're dealing with a lot of different ways to make sure people get compensated for their work. So a lot of innovation in, in different economic ways to get paid and different economics came about. And you needed a strong central government. And that is what the Constitution created, was a, a, a strong central government. And, uh, and, and Hamilton wrote about this in one of his letters. It was never published, but it's in his papers. And he says, yeah, I think, I think the commercial interests will like this document. It's a good one. And that's why a lot of them voted for it, because they wanted to control, um, you know, they, they wanted a strong government that was going to allow for the financial and political institution to give full faith and credit uh, to what they were doing, to protect what they were doing on the seas, and also, you know, to float securities and to finance different projects, because... Remember, you had that huge Western frontier that was just wide open. And it was going to get more wide open with time. And at that time, land was viewed as a source of great wealth, too. So that had to be tapped. So, so that was the economic dynamics at the time. But, but it was, you know, we're going to know better. We're not going to let anybody in, in England or anywhere else or in Rome tell us what to do. And you touch on something, too. The royal governors, that, that's a huge deal. I mean, these guys were appointed by a crown that, you know... Um, the commoners, the people over here didn't necessarily like, the businessmen didn't necessarily like. And so what you had is when you had the revolution come about, you had, you had all those guys thrown out. You had a new hierarchy put in. Now, you still had some very powerful private interests, like the school kills were still here, and Hamilton married one of them. Uh, and that really helped him advance, you know, socially. Uh, and those people, the old money, you know, were smart enough to keep doing what they were doing. Uh, but you had new money, like Jacob Astor, um, who came up, because he was a great trader, and he was able to work his way in uh, to this new system, this new socioeconomic elites, and other people followed after that. And uh, they did it with technology, and they did it with this uh, entrepreneurial spirit, uh, which was not hindered uh, by the Lockean philosophy. It was even even advanced, you know, by the liberal order. Uh, and so that's kind of kind of my thoughts. Now, once again, I'm not saying business is bad. I'm not saying making a profit is bad. Please don't, you know, folks, don't hear that. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I, I'm talking about who runs society, okay? And the business interests have got to be second, um, uh, you know, to the civil authorities who have got other interests primary. So and they, the, they, the business interests have got to figure in with the other interests. And the That's civil authority has to answer to something. Right. The civil authority can't not answer to a high, to, to another authority. There's no right. uh, that this is the problem, right. and that the civil authority is its own judge, jury, and never executioner, unless right. it finds you wanting, <laughs> then it'll right. execute right. you. So exactly. the civil authority has to has to answer to some, to something, and it doesn't answer to God anymore. As Brother Andre like, uh, and I have done shows here, many of them. 
Um, if the civil authority is not pursuing the one true common good, then right. it's not a valid and it's not a civil authority you want to live under. Exactly. But to your exactly. point, I mean, there's a couple of guys, uh, we wind up talking about revolutionary uh, times, and that's fine. <laughs> we, that means we can do another show, we can talk about modern times. William Morris. So William Morris signs the Declaration, signs the Articles of Association, signs the Constitution. Who's William Morris? Well, he was real a Philadelphia trader. He was a real estate guy. He owned a lot of a lot of land. Too. That's right. A after the war, what does William Morris do? He hooks up with James Wilson, and they found a bank, and then they actually conned the uh, the Confederation Congress into giving it a charter. And up until Wachovia Bank was sold, it was it, it was a, a bank charter uh, NBA one. So they found the first thing they did after the war was start a bank. <laughs> so. That will tell you, and this is two guys, Wilson and Morris, signed the Declaration of Independence. Their names are on it. Go look it up. Don't take my word for it. Go look it up. So two of the guys from Pennsylvania signed the Declaration. The first thing they did when the war was over was start a bank. And Wilson, it doesn't work out very well for him. He's a Supreme Court justice in 1793. And Morris has conned all these people and committed all of these uh, financial crimes. He's under house arrest. And they go looking for James Wilson, and he has to flee as a Supreme Court justice. He flees with his concubine, basically, with his mistress. He flees, and he dies in the background of a storeroom of a tavern in North Carolina somewhere. <laughs> so it didn't work out very The banking deal didn't work out very well for them. But just to add to what, uh, what David Wimhoff and I were talking about here, let me play a quick clip for you real quick here. This is what you were talking about was brilliantly done in the John Adams miniseries on HBO. Here's a little conversation between Vice President Adams and Secretary of State Jefferson from the, from the miniseries. Listen, I think you'll like it. Okay. The future prosperity of this nation rests chiefly in trade. Trade depends, among other things, on the willingness of other nations to lend us money. And how would you propose to establish international credit? Our first step would be to incur a national debt. Right. The greater the debt, the greater the credit. If the states are indebted to a central authority, it increases the power of the central government. There you have it exactly. The greater the government's responsibility, the greater its authority. The moneyed interest in this country is all in the north. So the wealth and power would inevitably be concentrated there in a federal government to the expense of the South. If that is the case, it is unavoidable if the Union is to be preserved. I fear our revolution will have been in vain if a Virginia farmer is to be held in hock to a New York stock jobber who in turn is in hock to a London banker. I mean, it's perfect. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what's happened. What's that? <laughs> it's exactly what happened, Mike. That's great. That's great, Mike. I, Mike, I did, that is an excellent clip. I, I just want to add one thing and, and and emphasize what you said. We're talking about the right ordering of society, here. right? That's what Catholic, we're talking the about. The Catholic faith tells us how to right order society. Everything is supposed to be based on the divine positive law, on God's law, on the Catholic faith, and the government, the civil authorities, are supposed to do what that is. But they're not supposed to make up morality. They're supposed to ensure virtue and morality is enforced. Okay, the American founders, as brilliant as they were, and as much as you know, we live their legacy, right? As much as we do, these guys also did not want that. 
they did not want God's order necessarily running things, okay? They wanted the financial order. They wanted the monetary order to run things. They were trying to build a country because they understood that um, they had suffered through the pre-revolution when they didn't have money and they were being crushed economically. And I think, I think there's a lot of authority for that. The British were, to a degree, exploiting the Americans. Absolutely. No doubt. Absolutely. No doubt about it. They, they didn't have – Thomas Pownell said they don't have any money. you got to give them money. That's why they're building their own stuff and they're going to revolt against you. They can't make specie. They print this stupid paper money and it causes all sorts of problems. They said, he said, give them the ability, former governor masters, give them the ability to make specie, to make money. So the founders understood the weaknesses in the system. They said, exactly what's in that clip. They said, this is how we're going to organize it. But they kind of kept God's law out of it. And um, that is where we come in after all these years and say, the civil authorities got to be there to right order society in accordance with God's law, which right orders society, not just in the domestic society, but in the international society. And maybe we can talk about that again another time, Mike, because um, John Epstein wrote another book about, okay. about uh, the Catholic international order, which also has a Neil Epstein and imprimatur, and it really stands as the giant for the last 80 years. Now, now here's something. Uh, we'll, we'll wrap this up. Uh, I'll let you get back to writing papers so I can read them. <laughs> uh, uh, one of the founders lived to regret this mercantilism and this just complete throwing off of God and the church. And that was John Adams. Adams famously wrote that this constitution is made for a religious people and it won't work for any other. And we have successfully now separated religious life from our political and our public affairs. You know, I like to say, when people say, that's why you keep your religion out of my politics, they go like, I'm a Catholic. When I go to confession, there's not a, there's not a business line and a private line. There's a line. Your sins count in business as they do in, in, in your personal life. Your life and your affairs and how you conduct them must be ordered to Christ. And what does is, what is our Lord tell us? The incarnate word says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And that's the greatest Neil Upstat imprimatur anyone can ever have. Just put that on there. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. So when David and I talk about this, and when David Simpson and I, and when Chris Ferrara and I, and when Brother Andre and Marie and I, when we talk about this, this these are not men, that, and Paul Kangor and I, they're not men sitting around making this stuff up and living uh, LARPer lives, you know, live-action role-playing, that we want to go back to the 13th century. I'm happy in the 21st century. <laughs> It, 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 it's it's right. fine. I, I like the standard of living. Indoor plumbing works for me. Running water <laughs> is good. I, I, I like these things. But I like telephones. Yeah, I like telephones. Telephones are fine. And yeah. As a matter of fact, actually, and I was I did a little monologue today on actually talking on the telephone. Far superior than texting. Try it sometime. <laughs> call someone up and you're like, "Hey, how are you?" And they'll be shocked that you called them. But. Yeah. We, Talk to people. That's a great idea. That's a new idea. I like that, Mike. It's a 2023 idea. This time has come. <laughs> but we have, but, but we have, uh, we have allowed them to remove. And now we're in the final stage of this revolt. The liberalism, you know, uh, Patrick Deneen's book, Liberalism is Dead, not Liberalism is Going to Die. According to Professor Deneen, 
liberalism is dead. Um, there's a group of guys, and I think you will find these uh, this worthy reading, that are now writing that two of them are professors uh, at Catholic University, and a couple of them are professors at Franciscan. It's called The New Polity, newpolity.com. Um, there's guys out there writing. I, I, I tell you what's bubbling behind the scenes here. That the CIA successfully dis- dis- completely dismantled all of it that remained. But what's bubbling behind the scenes and what men are talking about now, whether they realize it or not, what you're you're not live action role playing for the 13th century. You are questing and you're and you're thirsting for what we call Catholic integralism. It is a return in some form to an integral where the church teaching where the common good is the thing that's in society that guides everything under it. And uh, this is what the, 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 the quest is, and this is what the challenge is to me. Well, how do you separate now? And I believe now we need degrees of separation. How do we separate from what the founders created without losing some sense of unity, some sense of union? Um, uh, and this is why when people say, secede, 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 I say, okay, secede to what? And how do you propose to order the society? What are you going to do with the with the liberals, uh, uh, with the welfare state social net that they've erected here? Fake charity, right, in the name of philanthropy. What are you going to tell all those old people how they're going to get their medicine? You've all got them hooked now. They're like crack whores. They're all hooked now on five, six, eight pharmaceuticals that they take every single day. Medicare is going to pay for their Social Security coming in. What are you going to do? What are you going to tell them after you secede, secede, secede? So these are things that we have to think about. Um, and the answer to that is, I don't know. But we need to have conversations about it. This is what we need to talk about. Because if you do separate from the monster and you do get an integral or an integralist civilization to live in, how do you order it? I mean, we don't have any connection. We don't even have any knowledge of it anymore. We can't go somewhere in the real world that they say, well, that's an integralist society. That's a Catholic integral society. I don't know of any. Maybe there's a town out there somewhere that I don't know about. Let's wrap up uh, with that. I'll ask you that question. What, what say you? Yeah, you know, I, I, look, I, I don't have everything down to the detail. But I, but I know if, if you we have a history as Catholics and as members of the human race that we can look back on and we can see where these integralist societies came about. Um, I, you know, Portugal was one example. Uh, Salazar came to power um, after a liberal regime and he established this constitution that uh, worked for about 40 years. It's just, it's an example. Um, And it's not, Definitive, but it's an example. Um, you also, what you have to realize is the first and important thing is exactly what you're talking about. Again, Mike, is you got to have a vision. Where do you want to end up? What's the vision? And uh, to do that, you also have to know uh, where are you? Um, you know, I, I've heard this talk of seceding too. That's no, <laughs> not going to happen. Um, I, I've heard this talk about, um, you know, going down to the local levels and doing stuff at the state level. Yes, to a degree, you can do that. But you also have to understand that this, this is still a, a big country. There are still political 
and social bonds in this country. And you can get more achieved by um, targeting for conversion the key nodes. And there are key nodes in the society, the upper elites. Can they be converted? Yeah, Constantine. Yeah. Constantine. I, I think they can, yeah. To say they can't is to say, well, you know, then we're, there's no hope. So I think they can be. And I think Constantine's a good example. We have examples in our history that we can draw upon. But we have to come up with that vision first, which has a right order of everything and provides for everybody. And you're going to get opposition, but understand who the opposition's coming from and why. And just we have to just simply persist. But what has happened is the Catholic idea, the Catholic confessional state is the ideal has, has been subverted. And that's what my book, John Courtney Murray, Time Life, The American Proposition, it's available on Amazon, two volumes, uh, e-form and paperback. That's what that book talks about, how it was subverted. But now, yes, Patrick Deneen has got a book coming out later this year called Regime Change. And you can't get it. I haven't, I, I think I read a review. It's a very good review. But um, let's see what they say. These guys have got to help us go towards this vision, which we have in our history. And then it's the path but we're to get there but we got to do it together we have to do it together and that means we, we pull all of our resources toward towards this result toward this aim and thank god for you mike for talking about this on your show okay and getting people thinking and talking about it that's what we have to do that's what the catholic independent media has got to do so thank you for what you're, you're doing you're welcome it, but it's, it's I, I take it as a duty and as an obligation, because I'm trying to restore this kind of ethics in broadcasting, because as broadcaster, I should seek first me, the kingdom of God. Um, I'll, I'll leave you with this, and then let's let's agree to, to, to do this, as we said, in 2022, 20, uh, once a month. Me, uh, me, me, let's try to do it once a month, a little series here. So we covered the American Revolution. Now, now we, we can move into to the 19th century. <laughs> or go back to the 21st, or to the 20th. Uh, um as Brother Andre says, and I, I like Brother's description of this, and I think that this is really good practical advice. Let's draw the picture of the bow ideal, as George Mason would have called it, the bow ideal of what that confessional state looks like. Look at where you're at today. And then understand that realism, let's be real about it, you can't get from here to here. Now, God could divinely accomplish it. He could... I mean, it could be a natural disaster of some sort, could divinely order it. But it's, it's it, we don't know that that's going to happen. So we should precede them. Here's reality. Here's fantasy. Or here's what you where, where you want to go. You just you need to go. You need to be real about what can you do. What can you do? You know, small things like uh, they did this in a little town in Pennsylvania. I forget the name of it. Can you get your town consecrated to the Sacred Heart? Can you get your mayor and your council or your aldermen to get together and convince them, well, what this town needs is a consecration to the sacred heart of Jesus, um, which I don't think most even Protestants would disagree with because um, uh, they love Jesus. So they see the sacred heart. And this does things. If you're enthroned, if you consecrate something, that's to make it holy. So if you're enthroned or enrolled in a consecration uh, as a civic uh, uh, authority, well, then that's not nothing. So, and I, that's just, I'm not saying that that's how you start, but that's one thing that you can think about starting. Bring back parish life. Parish life may be the most important component of this. 
You know, the parish should come first, and you should live close enough to it so you can walk to it. Or at least, you know, a short drive to cut down on, uh, uh, on, on you know, modern forms of transportation and what have you. Parish life was probably instrumental, uh, was probably the foundation of most of those integralist societies that you talked about. You know, it, it, we have this conception that the country of France is this large and had this many people in it, and that King the Louis reigned. We don't understand that hierarchical system. That, that was a very diverse, very, very diverse, and power was distributed. The king only had authority in a few things, very few things. He, he wouldn't bark, run around and bark out orders and tax everyone because they, they breathed or whatever. Um, so it's the reality. It's where can you go where are we at with the reality? And I think that that's, that, that's just good, practical, reasonable advice and a good starting point. I, I think that's right, Mike, and I think I think that's your voice is very clear and it's very 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 true. And I think uh, I wish more uh, uh, <clears throat> more people would join in unison with you and uh, and talk about this um, because we have to have unity and and coming up with the uh, with the answer. And, and you know, I'm going to throw out here. Maybe you've done it, and and forgive me if you have. But I'm just going to throw a couple things out here. And and one is uh, let's let's get the, let's get the Catholic leadership, Catholic thinkers together to come up with a plan. Uh, that's number one. And number two, I want to say to Mr. Soros and Mr. Gates, convert to the Catholic faith. Uh, your soul depends on it. You're going to have a happy, good life. Uh, won't be easy sometimes, but you'll be <laughs> glad you did. And so will your kids. And so will everybody else. You'll be a hero if you convert to the Catholic faith and implement uh, the Catholic faith in all aspects of, of, of business life and political life and cultural life, you're going to be a hero. And I say that to all the billionaires. Convert, convert, convert. 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 All right. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Uh, David Wimhoff is uh, the author. He told you the name of his book, John Courtney Murray, Time, Life, and the American Proposition. Now, the CIA's doctrinal warfare program changed the Catholic Church. You'd have been a great guest on Art Bell's show. <laughs> well, maybe so. I think Art's passed on, hasn't he? He has, but uh, he lives on here on the Crusade Channel because we uh, we are archiving, storing, and re digitally remastering uh, lots and lots of Art Bell shows, and we broadcast them every day. Um, and people go, like, oh, that's kind of weird and far out there. Uh, you don't survive nationally syndicated on 712 radio stations for 12 years if it's not compelling. So, <laughs> no, I remember him. I remember listening to him. It was generally late at night, though. But. Oh, yeah, it was overnight. He started at midnight, ended at five. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. Uh, David, thank you thank very you. much. Appreciate uh, also, it. Also, I appreciate it very much. And also, read the American Proposition. And uh, I will. Uh, I look forward to talking to you again, Mike. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. We'll talk soon. You bet. All right. God bless. You too. Okay. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> folks, that. Um, will uh that, that will end our uh, our conversation with david wimhoff and we uh we um uh, we thank him for uh for stopping by and for being generous with his time you know we're building a really nice little catalog catalog 